0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The woman hears a sound outside her window as she drifts in and out of the fitful sleep of early morning. The sun is not up yet, so when she pulls on her robe, and cracks the front door slightly, her eyes must first adjust to the darkness. The noise is coming from an unoccupied house across the road. The woman sees a small bundle lying on the ground, but in the dark, she's sure it's a dog. The strange sound she heard earlier surely could not come from a human being. She turns around, and goes back inside. Only at sunup will the true horror of what lies across the road become clear. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 114, The Murder of Shahida Valencia Farmer. many of the cases I discuss on the podcast, we see how young South Africans struggle significantly with social and economic hardships. So I was excited to come across the podcast that's sponsoring today's episode. Change in One Generation is a new podcast series about young South Africans rising above hardship and adapting to change. The show is hosted by legendary journalist Ruda Landman and leadership expert, Dr. Frank Magwegue. Subscribe to Change in One Generation on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, or go to changepodcasts.co.za for more information. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank those listeners who've supported the show through Patreon or PayPal recently. A huge thank you goes out to Izzy Rama, Brian Lawson, Mariska de Jong, Jensel Butterson, Penny Lithauer, Seema Joseph, Christy Edwards, Leonie Kaiser, Marius Ullefier, and Marie van Heerden for your support on Patreon, as well as Jeffrey Swanson and Gary Evans for your support through PayPal. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to get an exclusive episode every month, as well as ad-free versions of every week's episode, check out the link to Patreon in the show notes and sign up for a minimum of $1, which is about the same price as a loaf of bread right now. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors, including King Online and Wallpaper Online, by using the discount code TCSA10 or True Crime respectively when purchasing on their websites, and you'll get a 10% discount too. Or you can support me as an individual creator by purchasing my book Samurai Sword Murder in hard copy, ebook or audiobook formats, as well as the audiobook I narrated for Jan Marks of the Krugersdorp cult murders. Non-financial support is just as valuable, so please share and invite your friends to listen. The case I'm discussing today feels all too familiar, even almost 24 years after it happened. When this murder hit the headlines, though, it was most certainly a shock to the public. The viciousness of the crime had people wondering what kind of criminals could do such a thing, and we would soon learn exactly what kind, and also, unfortunately, that while this case may have been one of the first, most certainly would not be the last. In researching this case, I used episodes of Distart Tien and Opsius Spur, as well as media articles. So let's get into episode 114, The Murder of Shahida Valencia Farmer. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Shahida Valencia Farmer was born to her mother Sylvia in 1985. Although in police statements Valencia was referred to by some of her friends as Shahida, it seems that her family and the bulk of those that knew her referred to her as Valencia. So that's how I'll refer to her in this episode too. There's never any mention of Valencia's dad by her mom, so I can only assume that he didn't play a role in her life. The farmers lived in a few different areas in and around Cape Town before settling in Easter River. The area is a suburb of the city of Cape Town, which started off as a collection of farms and soon grew into a fully-blown residential area in the late 80s, with its own schools and other infrastructure. In the 90s, Easter River started to get something else, slightly less desirable, too. Gang culture has unfortunately been a big part of the Western Cape for a very long time. In the interview I did with criminologist Dr Lisa Krobler, Prison by Numbers, about the numbers gangs, we learned just how far back gang culture goes in South Africa and we're talking about more than 100 years in some forms. Another thing we've learned is why gang culture became so deeply ingrained within certain racial groups in our country, and a lot of that has to do with apartheid and the Group Areas Act. Now I say this every time I talk about the coloured community in South Africa, and it's solely for the benefits of our international listeners. When I use the word coloured, Although this is considered a racial slur in many countries in the world, it is not considered such in South Africa. We have a racial group in South Africa that identifies as coloured. And yes, some members of this group are shifting away from this label, which will absolutely be their right if all choose to do so at some point. But at this point in South Africa, the vast majority of people who identify within this group still refer to themselves as coloured people. As I've mentioned in previous episodes when explaining why gang culture has become so prolific, specifically within the coloured community in South Africa, it turns out that one major reason for this is the Group Areas Act that was in place while the country was under apartheid rule. The Group Areas Act forced people to segregate into specific areas by race. Well, First people were asked, and I'm doing air quotes around that word, and then people were forced, rounded up and bussed and trucked off to often completely uninhabitable areas where the apartheid government had decided they were now going to live, because of the colour of their skins. People were pulled out of the communities they had created, most often interracial communities, and suddenly thrust into places where they didn't know anyone, and there was no structure or sense of leadership. For the colored community, street gangs began to form so that there was some level of hierarchy, and to avoid complete chaos. That was often how they started, at least, but soon they degenerated into criminality. Unfortunately, as the level of criminality increased in these areas with gang presence, that brought with it a cycle of drug use and alcoholism, children witnessing increasingly violent events until this became normal for them. This cycle is reinforced when children with this desensitization to violence grow into adults who may be involved in domestic violence situations, either as a perpetrator or a victim. As a perpetrator, it's far easier for a child who's been desensitized to violence to commit violence against others, and for victims with the same level of desensitization, having violence perpetrated against them is far easier to accept. And this becomes a cycle, because the children in these homes are then not only exposed to the continuing violence in their community, they're also experiencing it at home. Add to this the possible substance use issues within a home and perhaps parents who are not always there for their children, and then under-resourced communities where children have nowhere safe to go if they're not at home or at school, and the cycle becomes almost uninterruptible. Now, if you don't live in South Africa, I don't want you imagining for a minute that these communities are places that are completely out of control and just horrible places to be. And not all people living in these communities are victims of violence desensitization or substance use disorders or gang members. Most of the people living in these communities are ordinary families, just trying to make a living and build a life. They will all have their individual struggles But these are only amplified in an environment where they're not safe because of the scourge of gangs and where they need to be hyper vigilant about what their children are doing because they can be so easily sucked in by the gangs. So why am I getting so far deep into painting a picture of the environments that Valencia Farmer may have lived in before even discussing the crime committed against her? Well, that's because there was and sadly probably always will be a certain amount of victim blaming around this crime because of some of the circumstances which I'll clarify when we get there. But in order for us to truly take Valencia's story on board and honor her memory we need to understand that she was not living in a suburban paradise that some listeners may have grown up in. Her neighborhood did not have kids soccer camps and art classes on the corner. The culture of the community she lived in was different. And as a result, children did things that some of us may frown upon and find odd. And if we're honest with ourselves, even though you may not have been experimenting with alcohol, for instance, and going to parties when you were in your early teens, I can guarantee you that you knew someone who did, no matter where you grew up. The only difference was, you were lucky enough not to find yourself in a den of wolves. With that established, on with the episode. When Valencia was nine years old, her mom gave birth to a baby boy. Despite the big age difference between the two siblings, Sylvia Farmer said that her daughter and son were extremely close, and Valencia helped to raise Sylvia's second child almost like another mother figure. Valencia was quite a homebody. She loved cooking, she loved reading and cutting pictures out of magazines to stick into journals. Despite the difficulties of her community, Valencia excelled at school. Her mother said that she almost always got between 90 and 100 percent for her subjects and she decided that when she left school she wanted to be a lawyer. With grades like that, she could most certainly have made that dream come true. In her early teens, Valencia was also exploring the outside world, though, and although Sylvia said that nothing in her behaviour had ever really worried her, she did enjoy spending time with her friends. And this is where that thing I said earlier about understanding the dynamics of different communities comes in. Because children in their early teens in Easter River in 1999, when Valencia was 14, participated in activities and perhaps went places that people in other communities wouldn't think their teens should be doing. In the community Valencia lived in, drinking alcohol was a major pastime, and not just for adults, but for teenagers too. Where children of Valencia's age in some other neighbourhoods might be gathering at malls, skating rinks or having sleepovers, Most of Valencia's peers gathered at one of the many informal bars in the neighbourhood. In some communities in South Africa, these unlicensed liquor sellers are referred to as Shabines. In Valencia's community, they were often called Smokkelhacer. For the most part, they were set up in the back of someone's house, and the setup was very much like any other bar you might visit, with benches and tables to sit at, music pumping, and pool tables. This was very much the place to socialise at for teens in the area, even those who didn't consume alcohol. Sylvia Farmer recalls that on Friday the 26th of June 1999, her daughter was weirdly clingy after she came home from school. She was following her all over the house, and no matter where she went, her daughter was there. At one point, she asked Valencia What on earth was the matter? And the girl simply said she just wanted to see what her mom was doing. When I heard this, I did wonder if Valencia was trying to find the right moment to ask her mom if she could go out that night. That's why she was following her around. But she never did. And now Sylvia looks back at that as a rather special moment with her daughter and wishes... She'd enjoyed her presence more. That evening, Sylvia recalls that Titanic was being screened on television, and she and Valencia settled in front of the TV to watch it. Soon after the movie started, though, her daughter got up and said she was going to go to the next-door neighbours to watch with her school friend, and Sylvia said that would be fine. She describes how Valencia had stood at the door and turned to look at her, and instead of saying, I'll see you just now, she said, goodbye, Mom. Sylvia remembers her head snapping up at this remark, and she looked at her daughter, saying, not goodbye, you're coming home when the movie's finished. Valencia smiled and said, of course she would. And then she was gone. Now, anyone who's watched the movie Titanic knows that it is, well, a bit of a titanic movie. It's long. It's three hours and fourteen minutes. And when the final credits had rolled and some more time had passed, Sylvia realized that her daughter was still not home. She pulled a jacket on and went next door, but the neighbor's house, where Valencia said she would be visiting her friend, was in darkness. They were already asleep and clearly her daughter was not there. A little annoyed that her daughter had gone somewhere else without telling her, but having no idea where to start looking, Sylvia went inside and waited. By the time Sylvia Farmer noticed that Valencia was not where she said she'd be, a party was well underway at a nearby smokehouse. The venue, referred to by locals as Denise's Yard, was also called the Pink Tents by some, on account of the tents the owner of the establishment had set up in her yard to provide shelter to her patrons. It would emerge that Valencia had indeed gone next door that night, but she'd had one idea in mind. Her friend said that Valencia had been insistent that she wanted to go out for a while and begged her friend to go with her. Her friend eventually relented, and they arrived at Denise's yard around 10pm. There, the friend, who didn't drink alcohol, says that Valencia bought herself one beer, and then a group of girls bought her some more. At one point, her friend said that she was going to the toilet, and when she returned, she saw Valencia talking to a man. Now there's another thing that needs to be understood about Valencia's community, which would actually play a major role in this case, and that's that not everyone was known by their real names. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for two people to know each other pretty well and only ever know each other by their nicknames or street names. The men especially each had nicknames they'd either earned or been given to them over time and this is how they were known for the most part. The girl only knew the man standing talking to Valencia that night by his nickname, Bacchys. His real name would later be revealed to be Glenville Faro. Eighteen-year-old Glenville Faro was likely the kind of boy Sylvia would not have liked Valencia bringing home. He was a gang member, and he'd been one for most of his teenage life. Farrow would claim that he and Valencia were dating, but none of Valencia's friends knew this to be true. With that said, it makes complete sense to me that a 14-year-old girl would be excited by the attentions of an 18-year-old boy, and if he seemed a little dangerous, perhaps that would have added to the mystique. Sadly, Valencia would soon come to understand that Faro was not just a rebellious young man. He was dangerous in the truest sense of the word. Glenville Faro was a member of the Naughty Boys. The street gang had set up a significant presence in Easter River, and they were well known for drug dealing, violence, and every other negative form of criminality that comes with gang life. Although to most of us, 18 years old is really still a child, Faro had long since left his childhood behind. His membership in the gang means he'd done things that most men twice his age couldn't even fathom, and as he set his eyes on 14-year-old Valencia, his intentions were never going to be kind. Faro often visited Denise's yard along with his fellow gang members. People knew the young men were members of the Naughty Boys, and for the most part they were just accepted as part of the background vibe of the establishment. As long as they didn't cause trouble, they could blend in with everyone else. The Naughty Boys was, at this point, one of the smaller but burgeoning youth gangs in the area. They were affiliated to the 26's Numbers Gang, so if a member of the Naughty Boys went to prison they would automatically identify as a 26 within the walls of prison. The Naughty Boys never really cemented a hold on the area but they did spend several years terrorizing the community. Perhaps one of the most infamous crimes they ever committed would be that very night. Valencia's friend last saw her walking away from the party with Glenville Faro that night. There's something about the timeline of events on this evening that has never been explained, and it still bugs me, but I can only tell you what I've found to be the verified version. Other witnesses at the party said that Glenville Farrow returned to the party about an hour later, around 11pm, but he was alone. When he returned, he made a comment about just having had sex which was overheard by bystanders. At some points Valencia's friend seemed to have gotten tired of waiting for her to reappear and she went home. What she couldn't know was that Valencia was not safe. In an abandoned house near the Smokelhase. Valencia lay in the dirt and this is the part where there's a gap in time that doesn't make sense to me and was never explained as far as I can see. It appears that between 10 and 11 p.m. Glenville had convinced Valencia to go with him. His comment seems to indicate that there was a sexual interaction between them. He would later claim this was consensual. But what would happen later makes me believe this was not true either way she was not of a legal age of consent. What confuses me though is that this initial attack on her was not the end. Sadly it was just the beginning of her night of horror but there appears to have been a long gap between this initial incident and the final most brutal attack on her. Everyone said that when Glenville Faro returned to the party that night at 11pm, he was alone. No one mentioned seeing Valencia after that, so we can only assume that she was still lying in the abandoned house. But again, this has never been explained, because according to the other perpetrators, the injuries that would eventually kill her had only been inflicted on her close to 2am the next morning so I don't really understand how Valencia remained in the abandoned house after Glenville Forreau left her there the first time. Was she unconscious? Was she bound? Was someone else there ensuring she couldn't leave? This has never really been explained, unfortunately. What we do know is that between 1am and 2am the next morning, Glenville and several other gang members left the Smorkel house. Glenville allegedly asked the men if they wanted to have sex. Please note that the following descriptions are very difficult to listen to. Over the next hour, Glenville Faro, and several other gang members, we'll get into how many and who a bit later, repeatedly took turns raping Valencia. Then, A knife was produced, and each man present again took turns, this time stabbing her. In all, Valencia received 52 stab wounds. Finally, her throat was slit, and the men left her in the abandoned house. As the group walked away, they undoubtedly believed that Valencia was dead, or at least very close to it, but they were wrong. What they did not account for was the incredible fighting spirit that this young girl was about to display. Despite losing a significant amount of blood, police officers would later say it looked like more than one person had been slaughtered in the house with the amount of blood that was present. Valentia Farmer, slipping in and out of consciousness, waited until she was sure her attackers were gone, and then, She began to crawl out of the house. The amount of pain she must have been in is difficult to fathom, and she'd likely try to hold her throat closed with one hand so she'd only have one hand free to pull herself along the ground. Forensics officers noted the path on the ground that she'd made as she made her way out of the structure. There was no floor or roof to the house, just walls, so the ground was soil and grass. And later, the impressions of the girl's body were clear at each point where she'd rested, or perhaps briefly lost consciousness in what must have seemed like an interminable journey to get help. Near the front entrance, she seemed to try to get up, as the wall was marked with streaks of bloody handprints. It's likely that she realized though she simply didn't have the strength to stand, and so she continued to slowly pull herself along. Valencia made it to an open piece of land near the abandoned house and opposite an occupied home before she lost all strength and couldn't move any further. As she lay there, she attempted to call out. The noise she made was heard by one of the occupants of the house around 3am, and the woman had come outside. She'd looked around, and in the dark could not identify where the sound was coming from. She did see a mound laying just across the road, but from the noise she'd heard earlier, and the size of the bundle, she thought it was a stray dog. The woman went back inside her house. What she was seeing, of course, was Valencia Farmer. The young girl continued to drift in and out of consciousness for another two hours. When she found the strength, she would call out in the hopes that someone would hear her. It's very likely that the strength it took for Valencia to call out each time made her lose consciousness. Her throat had been slit, and it was probably extremely painful to make any sound, and that pain may have also overwhelmed her on each occasion. I think it's likely that when the woman came outside the first time, Valencia had lost consciousness from the effort of calling out, and she didn't hear the woman, which is why she did nothing to try and get her attention at that point. At 5am, Valencia once again summoned enough strength to call out, and this time the woman asked her husband, who was then awake, to go outside with her. The couple walked across the road toward what they still thought was a stray dog, and soon realized the true horror of what they were looking at. The form on the ground was not a dog. It was a naked teenage girl. Her skin punctured countless times. She was covered in blood. With one hand, she tried to hold the wound in her neck closed. The couple stood frozen in shock for a moment. Before they sprang into action, the woman kneeled down beside the girl and comforted her as she slipped in and out of consciousness. Her husband ran inside and phoned the police and an ambulance, and then he grabbed a blanket and ran back outside. As he covered the girl, his wife tried to ask her what had happened, but realized it was extremely difficult for the girl to talk. Later in court, The woman would testify about that moment. She decided that if nothing else she might be able to get the girl's name out of her and with great effort she'd managed to get out. Valencia Farmer. While his wife waited for the ambulance with the girl her husband decided to try and find her family. He started knocking on neighbors doors asking if anyone knew where the farmers lived. Within minutes He was directed to the door of Sylvia Farmer. Sylvia was waiting for first light to go looking for her daughter. Her plan had been to go to the homes of her friends and if she didn't find Valencia there, then to go straight to the police station. She wouldn't make it that far though. Just after 5am she heard a voice calling from outside her gate. She looked out of the window, and saw a man she didn't know. He was calling out for Mrs. Farmer. Sylvia opened the door and asked if she could help. The man asked if she was Mrs. Farmer and did she have a teenage daughter. Sylvia's whole body went cold and she managed to get out that she was and she did. The man said she needed to come with him immediately. Sylvia stood rooted to the spot for a moment as she asked, Is she alive? The man said she was, but she needed to come very quickly. Throwing a jacket on over her nightdress, Sylvia raced out into the early dawn light, following the man who struggled to explain to her what was happening. As they neared the spot, Sylvia saw a crowd of people. The ambulance and police had arrived, and Sylvia struggled to push through the crowd to get to where paramedics were attending to her daughter. When she saw the naked, bloodied body of her child, she fell to her knees beside her. The tried to speak to her mother, but couldn't. The moment she saw her though, her hand went to her throat in an attempt to hide the horrific gash in her neck. Paramedics attempted to stabilize Valencia at the scene and rushed her to Tigerberg Hospital. The immediate priority was to provide her with the blood she had lost. At this point, her heart was working overtime to try and supply all of her organs with sufficient blood to avoid organ damage. But she was still actively bleeding from many of her stab wounds. The doctors found themselves in a catch-22 situation. Valencia desperately needed life-saving surgery to the major lacerations, especially the one in her neck, but it was also impossible to place her under anesthetic because she was simply too weak. Doctors did their best to close up her wounds as far as possible so that the blood transfusions they were giving her would work, but it remained a very serious situation. Two hours after Valencia was discovered, a young police officer, Eddie Clark, got a call that would change his life and his career. He'd only recently been promoted into an investigative role, and while he'd investigated murders, this would be the first of this nature that arrived at his door. A young person, and what would become an extremely high-profile case. Clark recalls arriving on the scene after Valencia had been taken to Tigerberg. The first responders had figured out by following the trail of blood that Valencia had been attacked in the abandoned house. This was identified as their primary crime scene, when Clark found the enormous pool of blood in one of the back rooms. Also, there were pieces of bloodied clothing which would later be identified as belonging to Valencia. Fingerprints in blood were found on the walls around where the attack had taken place. The house was cordoned off, and forensics officers scoured it for hours until they were sure they had everything available to them. Clark was surprised to hear that the victim was still alive, but he also wasn't willing to hope that this would be the case for much longer. He started his investigation as a murder case despite the fact that the victim was still alive. He spoke to Sylvia Farmer and Valencia's friend, who he was able to track down pretty quickly. That girl gave him the nicknames or street names of Beckys and several other men who'd been with him the previous night. Then Clark headed off to the hospital. Although he figured that Valencia would probably be in no condition to talk to him, he also could not turn down the opportunity to possibly get a first-hand account from the victim herself. When he arrived, he understood that this would likely not be possible, at least not in spoken words. Valencia was awake, but she had drains and pumps going in and out of her neck, and she was unable to speak. Eddie Clark introduced himself and told Valencia that he was there to catch the people who'd done this to her. One thing that struck me about this case was how much emotion both Clark and Fannikak, the eventual prosecutor in this case, still carry with them today around what was done to Valencia Farmer. On several occasions, both men choke up when they describe certain scenes or parts of this case. The first for Eddie Clark when he describes looking into Valencia's eyes as he explained who he was. He says her eyes welled up with tears immediately and he recognized that she was pleading with him to help her. In that moment, Clark made a promise to her that he would later repeat to her mother. He told Valencia that he would not stop until he'd arrested every single person involved in hurting her. as the girl could not speak, Clark made another plan. With the nurse, with the nurse there as witness, and his list of street names for individuals he'd already identified as possible suspects, Clark told Valencia that he was going to say certain names, and if the person he was referring to was one of her attackers, she should blink her eyes twice in quick succession. He asked her to blink if she understood, and she blinked twice. What happened next, Clark says, was like something out of a movie. Valentia was hooked up to all sorts of machines monitoring her vitals, and when he said the name, Beckys, her heart rate shot up. Alarm started screaming, and Valentia seemed to be gasping, although she was intubated. The nurse shouted at him that he needed to get out, as she tried to stabilise the girl again, but as he was backing out he looked at Valencia and she was furiously opening and closing her eyelids. Yes, yes, yes. She may not have been able to use her voice, but Valencia Farmer had spoken. While at the hospital, Clark ascertained from her doctors that not only had Valencia been stabbed more than 50 times at their count and her throat had been slit, but she'd also been savagely raped. The doctor who treated her had seen rape cases before and he said that this was undoubtedly more than one offender. They'd performed a rape kit on Valencia and they'd swabbed areas where offenders may have touched her body and that evidence was collected and sent to the lab. As Clark drove away from the hospital, he was already formulating a plan in his mind. His main suspect, Glenville Faro, a.k.a. Beckies, had now been identified by the victim as one of her attackers. By pairing that with the witness testimony that Faro had been seen with Valencia that night, and he'd been the last person seen with her, Clark felt he had a pretty decent case to secure an arrest warrant for the man. The only question was whether he would be charging him with attempted murder or murder. In the early hours of the morning of the 28th of June 1999, almost exactly 24 hours from when she'd been attacked, Valentia Farmer succumbed to her injuries in hospital. Her body had undergone far too much damage from loss of blood and shock and it simply could not cope. Clark got the phone call just after 3am to let him know that his attempted murder case was now a murder. Not long after that phone call, Clark snapped handcuffs onto the wrists of 18-year-old Glenville Farrow. In the days that followed, another five men were arrested. Twenty-two-year-old Almario Marsdorp, alias Pandora. Nineteen-year-old Franklin Roberts, alias Frankie. Fifteen-year-old Russell van Weyck, alias Border, Twenty-five-year-old Johannes Creel, alias Pila. And Albert Friesla, alias Spierwit. Clark was well aware of the gang connections between the men and he knew that this would mean the case was going to go in a very specific direction. He expected the men not to talk, and the most certainly wouldn't split on one another. That was the way of the gang. Snitches get stitches does not begin to describe it. Gang members who admit to their crimes or tell on others usually do not survive past the stitches stage. Snitches get coffins. So Clark was surprised when initially at least the men did start talking about the crime. Four of the accused, Faro, van Weyck, Roberts and Marsdorp, admitted to having been at the smokehouse that night and seeing Valencia there. Faro claimed he'd had consensual sex with Valencia but that he didn't know anything about a rape or murder. Van Weyck the youngest of the gang, initially admitted he had raped Valencia, and he'd stabbed her three times. Roberts admitted to raping her, but he said he didn't know anything about the murder. Marsdorp denied having any involvement in the rape or murder, and Frieslaw and Kriel denied even being at the small collage that night. Witness testimony was able to place Faro, van Weyck, Roberts, and Marsdorp at the party, but Creel had only been linked because someone had heard his nickname being called out by one of the other men. No one had physically laid eyes on him there. Thankfully, there was a wealth of physical evidence both at the scene and on Valencia's body that conclusively linked at least three of the men to the rape. DNA from Farrow, Von Weick, and Roberts was identified in Valencia's rape kit. The lab said that there were other contributors too, including one who'd had a single marker quite similar to one Creel had, but they couldn't conclusively say it was Creel's DNA. Marsdorp and Flissler were excluded as possible contributors to the DNA sample. Fingerprints from Faro and Van Vake were also found in Valencia's blood. Despite initially making certain admissions, by the time the trial started, the men had clearly realized there would be a price to be paid if they went against gang rules in court, and as such, they all claimed that any admissions they'd made had been beaten out of them, and they'd not been advised of their rights. In opening, the state announced that it was withdrawing charges against two of the men, Frislaw and Marsdorp as they had insufficient evidence to connect the two men to the crime. As for the four others, as Louis van Nikak for the state started to present the case against them, it became clear that at least for three of the men, the mountain of evidence would make it very difficult for them to escape a conviction. One man, though, did not seem to have the same fate in his future although the state went ahead with charges against johannes creel it soon became clear that not only could the man not be conclusively linked but he hadn't really been there at all creel's defense attorney presented several eyewitnesses that testified to having seen him at a completely different drinking establishment that night considering no one could place him at denise's yard and there was no physical evidence tying him there it seemed clear that it was only his unfortunate nickname, Pila, that had linked him at all. That could have just been a word used in a different context by the men. So, to clarify for our international listeners, the Afrikaans word Pila is a colloquial word for penis, perhaps closer to the English colloquial word Dick. The allegation that drew Johannes Creel into this investigation was that someone had heard one of the accused men call out in Afrikaans, pila mark, or hurry up, dicks, we must finish. Now, not only does this remark completely turn my stomach in the context it's being used in, but two other things stand out to me. There were people close enough to the abandoned house that night to hear the men calling to each other. Certainly, The man doing the calling out may have been standing in the street, on the lookout, and called back to the men, but there were other people around, and whether because of fear or perhaps just not really caring, no one wondered what the group of men were doing in the abandoned house. And the other thing that stands out to me about this is that Johannes Creel was drawn into this whole thing on the basis of that single remark. The man did have a criminal record, even his lawyer would admit he was no angel, but none of his offences had been violent, and he didn't really have significant ties with any gangs. Krill would later express how absolutely horrified he'd been to have been linked with such a despicable crime. Even after he was found not guilty in a court of law, the stigma of being Valencia's murderer and rapist still hung over him, People just assumed he'd gotten away with it and not that he was really innocent. Creel eventually left Cape Town to live somewhere else in an attempt to start over. On the 27th of February 2001, the remaining three men, Glenville Farrow, Russell van Vijk and Franklin Roberts, were all found guilty of both murder and rape. During the sentencing and handing down of judgments, Judge Desai reminded the court how brave Valencia had been. Evidence had been presented that she'd fought back ferociously and even bitten a few of her attackers. Desai reminded those present how Valencia fought to stay conscious until her attackers were gone and then dragged herself to safety. And how, in a final act of courage, She'd confirmed the identity of one of her attackers. Desai described the crime as one of the worst he'd ever seen, and sentenced Faro and Roberts to two life sentences each. Russell van Weyck, who was just 15 years old at the time, just a year older than his victim, was given the harshest sentence ever given to a minor in South African history up until that point, 23 years. When State Prosecutor Louis Farnica talks about this case, he says that two things stand out for him. He was revolted that the defense attorneys for the men tried to shame Valencia by essentially saying that by being at a place where alcohol was consumed, she was asking for what happened to her. He was grateful that Judge Desai had made it very clear in his judgments that regardless of where that young girl had gone that night, no one had the right to do what they did to her. The other thing that stands out for Fannykirk is how absolutely brave Valencia was. He becomes visibly emotional when he talks about how much strength it must have taken for her to continue pushing through after she'd been so badly injured and traumatised. Sylvia Farmer was happy with the judgments and sentences She, however, felt that there was one man out of the three that had been released that was guilty, and Eddie Clark shared her sentiments. Almario Marsdorp was released due to insufficient evidence against him and went back into the world, but there was always a deep sentiment that he'd been directly involved. Unfortunately, at that point, there was no way to prove it. Sylvia had tried to rebuild her life. Her health suffered significantly as a result of her daughter's murder. She was diagnosed with depression soon after and placed on medication. The years ticked by and the woman knew that one day she was going to have to face her daughter's killers again. In December 2014, That moment came when the youngest of the offenders had served 15 years of his 23-year sentence and became eligible for parole, and a victim-offender dialogue was set up with Sylvia Farmer. The woman told Russell van Veijk that she wanted to know the truth about what had happened that night. She wanted to know why it had happened and who had done what. Russell told the woman... He would tell the whole truth, but it would take him another six months and another parole hearing for him to gather the courage to do so. In June 2015, Eddie Clark got a phone call. It was the parole board at the Correctional Facility Housing Russell Van Vake, and they said that he wanted to provide a statement about the murder of Valencia Farmer. When the first three men were convicted for this crime, the motive was still not really clear. Many suspected that it had something to do with the gangs, but this was never really confirmed. When Russell van Weck started to talk, though, many things became crystal clear. Van Weck admitted that the rape and murder of Valencia Farmer had been part of his initiation into the Naughty Boys gang. Gang initiation often involves rape and occasionally murder too. He also revealed that all three of those who'd been convicted were indeed guilty. And there was a fourth man there that night too, Elmario Marsdorp. Von Weick explained that on the night of Valencia's murder, Glenville Faro had told him that they were going to complete his initiation into the gang. When they walked into the abandoned house... Marsdorp and Franklin were raping Valencia. Von Veik had raped her after them, and then Marsdorp had pulled out a knife and told them all to stab her. They'd passed the knife around between them, each taking turns stabbing the girl. When they were finished, someone had slit her throat. He wasn't sure who'd done that, he said. Then Marsdorp had taken the knife and discarded it. Van Vanwijk told the parole board that he was truly remorseful for his role in Valencia's rape and murder, and that, if necessary, he would serve his entire 23-year sentence, if that was what her mother wanted to prove his remorse. As soon as the statement was sent to Clark, he contacted Prosecutor Louis Vanikak. Fifteen years before, the two men had gone to bat for Valencia, and now they had an opportunity to bring the case full circle and put the final perpetrator behind bars. Both would be thankful that the original investigation had been conducted so thoroughly because they could now take that information along with Funveik's statement and Almario Marsdorp's admission that he had been at the smokehouse that night and get an arrest warrant for Marsdorp. Clark had no doubt that the man would claim his innocence, but considering Van Vake wasn't getting anything in return for his testimony, and considering Marsdorp's gang connections, he was putting his life on the line to tell the truth, they both felt it would hold decent weight in court. In early September 2015, South Africa was surprised to see the name Valencia Farmer back in the headlines although the people of Easter River had never forgotten Valencia, and after the conviction of her murderers, a group of residents had gotten together and torn down the house she was attacked in, brick by brick. Most residents had never felt a sense of closure in the girl's case. Worse still, in the years since her murder, violence against women had only increased, with cases like those of Vanine Boysen, which were horrifyingly similar to Valencia's, and just seemed to prove that gangs had no intention of stopping their violent initiations, and their level of respect for women had not increased. Eddie Clark, by then a lieutenant colonel in the SAPS and heading up the Specialized Investigations Unit in Blue Downs, recounted how when he'd arrived at the door of Almario Marsdorp, The 38-year-old man had not resisted arrest. Rather, he'd given Clark a bit of a defeated smile, asked how he'd been and then told the officer that he'd known he would never give up and one day he'd be back for him. Clark was taken aback at the man's frank admission and was more surprised when back at the police station Marsdorp admitted his involvement in Valencia's rape and murder. He pointed out both the spot where the house had once stood, as well as the manhole into which he'd thrown the knife. Of course, 15 years later there was no hope of recovering the murder weapon, but it was an additional piece of the puzzle they hadn't had before. Then he explained why they hadn't found any of his DNA at the scene. He'd been far more careful than the others, he'd said. He'd worn a condom when he raped Valentia, and he'd been sure not to touch anything that could be fingerprinted. That was why he'd volunteered to get rid of the knife, too. He wanted an opportunity to ensure it was properly wiped down and disposed of. Although Marsdorp initially cooperated, It soon became clear that he wasn't going to make things easy for Clark and Fanny At his first court appearance, he told the judge he decided to represent himself, and didn't want any legal counsel provided. Then, at his second appearance, he changed his mind, but said he wouldn't be applying for bail. The trial of Almario Marsdorp would experience several delays in starting, until eventually in December 2015, Marsdorp announced through his legal representative in court that he was preparing to enter into a plea agreement with the state. The details of this agreement would take another two months to hash out, and eventually the state, Sylvia Farmer and Marsdorp agreed to 23 years imprisonment in exchange for a guilty plea. This meant that Marsdorp would get off lighter than the two other non-minor offenders, not lighter than Russell van Veck, who'd ultimately delivered the nail to Marsdorp's proverbial coffin. Marsdorp, though, had had 15 years of freedom, but on the other hand, he would also be much older when he eventually completed his sentence. In February 2016, the judge accepted the plea deal and sentenced El Mario Marsdorf to 23 years in prison. With the final perpetrator behind bars, Eddie Clark gave an interview to a journalist, and they spotted a bit of a memorial to Valencia on the wall behind his desk. Clark had a few cases in his career, he admits, including Valencia's, which hit home more than others. They were the ones that followed him home at night. Every time he'd moved offices in the 15 years after Valencia was murdered, he'd moved the pictures he had of her and her grave around with him. They'd been a reminder that his promise to her had not been entirely completed. But with Marsdorp behind bars, the vow he'd made in the hospital that day to a dying teenager was finally fulfilled. For Sylvia Farmer, the final conviction was a relief, but it also renewed the knowledge that it was just another parole hearing she'd have to wait on tenterhooks to attend. Despite von Weick's assistance with the case, he'd been denied parole on several occasions, but in July 2017, after serving 18 years behind bars, he was granted parole. He would spend another five years under Correctional Services supervision, until his sentence expired in 2022. Sylvia was not happy that Russell was released before he'd served his full sentence. She said that she was concerned he would re-offend. In 2019, Franklin Roberts, who was given two life sentences for his crime, was released on parole. Now, this is a bit confusing, because life sentences today carry a minimum prison period of 25 years before the offender is eligible for parole, but because Roberts was sentenced in 1999 before that ruling came into effect, it does not apply to him. It is still, in my opinion, a pathetically short period of time for such a dangerous offender to have served, but the truly shocking part would happen in 2021 when it emerged that Sylvia Farmer had not been told that Roberts had been released. The woman would discover this information from a journalist who'd been interviewing her. The Department of Correctional Services claims that Sylvia was advised, but the woman denies this wholeheartedly. As at 2021, it seemed that Glenville Farrow was still behind bars, but he'd been moved to a prison outside of the Western Cape. This is often done when offenders are high-ranking gang members in an attempt to defuse their control over their gang members. This seems to indicate that Faro is likely still heavily involved in gang activity. In all fairness, Faro may have requested that he be moved to a prison outside of the Western Cape because he'd broken ties with the gangs too, but I think that's pretty unlikely. Almario Marsdorp will be eligible for parole anywhere from around 2032. As I researched this case, I was astounded by the parallels between it and the murder of Anine Boyson in Bradarsdorp in twenty thirteen. In both cases, the victims had gone out with friends to an informal drinking establishment. In both cases, they were raped horrifically and received astoundingly brutal injuries. In both cases, the victims managed to survive and were able to give some indication as to the identity of their attackers. In both cases, the men were known by their street names. In both cases, the victims died shortly after providing this evidence. In fact, Anine and Valencia even died in the same hospital, Tigerberg. Despite Anine's hometown being a very long way from Valencia's, Anine was moved to Tigerbird due to the nature of her injuries. In both cases, there were rumours of more people being involved and in gang initiations. When I covered Anine's case, I was not armed with the knowledge of gangs that I have now. When the man that was convicted of her murder claimed that others were involved and that he'd only had limited involvement while others had played the more major roles, I called it as probable bullshit. And I'm here to say to you that I'm very likely wrong on that. I now do believe that Anine's murder was gang-related, and I do believe that there are others out there who were not brought to book for her murder. I wonder if when the man convicted of Anine's murder one day comes up for parole, we'll see a replay of what happened in Valencia's case. Although there, it won't be 15 years. It'll be 25. Considering Van Vake's admissions were completely out of the blue and totally out of order with gang rules, I somehow doubt we'll see this happen again anytime soon. I will say that this case terrifies me for many reasons. For many at the time, it seemed like a crescendo of of an orgy of violence that had just started up. Surely, with the perpetrators receiving stiff sentences and being caught so quickly and efficiently, the public thought this would put the fear of prison time into future offenders, but that didn't happen because we aren't dealing with ordinary offenders here. We aren't dealing with men who commit violence against their wives and girlfriends, but otherwise live ordinary lives, although that's bad enough, and I'm not trying to minimize those crimes. What we're dealing with here, though, is an almost genetically engineered violence predator. A man who's likely almost since birth been regularly exposed to violence, had it drummed into his head that women are nothing more than sexual playthings, and spent his developmental years surrounded by men to whom stabbing a 14-year-old girl 52 times is a Friday night activity. A mark of achievement, and a milestone. These people have no fear of prison. Their life on the inside is almost expected and planned from the moment they join the gang. Yes, being free is better, but progression within the gang means more than freedom. To them, it's just another price to pay for belonging. And that is utterly terrifying. Because these men are prepared to die for these gangs too so not even the possibility of a death sentence would likely deter them. I wondered whether when I did an case, and I was so against believing in gang involvement, it was because it was this very thing I didn't want to acknowledge. That while we can fight against gender-based violence in certain forms, and help promote access to resources for victims of domestic violence and rape, There is absolutely nothing we can do to stop another 14-year-old girl from going out with her friends or walking to the shops or even standing in her front yard and being snatched up by a charming, good-looking local boy who in reality is a terrifying predator. Yes, there are things we can do to stem the tide of gang culture. By working on the socio-economic issues that get these young men involved in the first place. And maybe that's where we need to start. Maybe that's the only place to put a spoke in the wheel and actually save future victims. Because punishment sure as hell isn't doing anything to stop it. In some cases I find myself imagining what the victim might have felt. I don't always, but sometimes I can't help it. And let's face it, none of us can ever truly imagine the horror Valencia Farmer faced when she was attacked, and in the hours after that. It's perhaps a little sadly ironic that Valencia wanted to be a lawyer, because in the end she did stand for justice, just not in the way she would have imagined. June is a pretty chilly month in the Western Cape. Valencia would have been cold and in incredible pain. She'd lost a huge amount of blood and just pulling herself a few centimetres along the ground probably felt like running a marathon. I cannot fathom where a 14-year-old girl got the strength from to do what she did, to survive as long as she did. So that she could confirm to Clark that he was on the right track. Valentia would be thirty-eight years old this year, but she's not. She's fourteen, still fourteen, always fourteen. Two of the four men who were responsible for her death are already just living their lives again, maybe reoffending. Maybe not. Valencia Farmer loved cooking. She loved reading and cutting out pictures that represented things she hoped to see in her future. She dreamed of a life different than the one she lived with her single mom, who was just doing the best she could. Instead, she became a starting point. Her dreams of defending justice one day somehow morphed into a sick irony where the justice system would have to fight for her and clark and funny did right down to the last man but even they have to know that it would probably never be enough it would never truly undo what had been done because valentia will always be 14. Shahida Valencia Farmer, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 114, The Murder of Shahida Valencia Farmer. Thanks again to this week's sponsor, Change in One Generation. To hear amazing stories of change, go to changepodcasts.co.za. I'm sure you'll enjoy the show. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This you can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.